Hi there, my name's Mark Hanikeri. I'm a plastic surgeon in Perth. Uh, I've got a family with three young children and um, I really enjoy travelling, I enjoy uh, gardening uh, and I am someone with a goal. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Someone With A Goal and today we delve into the story of Perth dad, avid traveller and specialist plastic surgeon, Dr Mark Henny Carey. Now in our fascinating sit down we go into Mark's upbringing, really just break down his story growing up and how it was one day while watching TV of doctors operating on kids in third world countries that really sealed his decision to become a doctor in his field. Now today, as a surgeon with 15 years experience, really just go into the expectations he had during those years of training and the realities of his profession today, especially now with the rise and the pressures of social media. Now on top of that, Mark addresses some of the common misconceptions about his profession held by those in the public, including myself. With that, I encourage you to sit back, relax and enjoy as we condense 15 years of experience and wisdom into 30 minutes as told by Perth's own sought after specialist plastic surgeon, Dr. Mark Hanny Carey. Enjoy. Thanks for being on the show. Really just want to go into your background, if you can, just what, um, what started your, your journey to becoming a, a doctor in your field, but um, more so your background and what was your upbringing like growing up? I grew up in, um, in, a, in a suburb called Girraween, which is in the northern suburbs of, uh, of Perth. Very modest background, um, uh, middle class family, immigrants. Um, my family immigrated from India back in 1969. My father in 1970, my mum brought the rest, the rest of the family, two sisters and myself. Um, I went to a, a little primary school called Montrose Primary School and a, a, a little Catholic school called Mercy College in Kundula. Um, and um, all through my childhood, my, my parents uh, um, kind of encouraged me to pursue a career in medicine. That was kind of the path that my father picked out for me when I was very young. Um, I showed some um, academic um, skill, I suppose, and uh, so he thought that uh, coming from India where it's a very, you know, very big thing to be a doctor, um, he encouraged me along that path. Um, as a typical teenager, I, I didn't take that path and I started out as an engineer. Um, I, I started out in engineering in, in, in university and um, then during my university first year I decided I didn't really like engineering and uh, when I really thought about it I, I decided I, I did want to be a doctor. I happened to be watching a program on telly when I made the decision and I saw a bunch of doctors who uh, were operating on kids in the third world and fixing up their faces and um, and I thought that looked like a really cool thing to do. Um, I was quite artistic at the time. I was into sketching and sculpting and trying to explore my artistic side and I thought that that would be a way to um, fulfil both my artistic interests and my uh, academic and, um, and clinical interests of becoming a doctor. So. Um, I, I decided to, to go into medicine and eventually after another year at university I got into medical school and um, then uh, when I was in medical school and towards the end of my, my training as a, as a, uh, a medical student I, um, I found out that plastic surgeons were the guys who did that kind of work and so my pathway then was towards becoming a, a plastic surgeon and around my third year of, uh, of postgraduate year work as a doctor um, I, uh, I managed to get a year overseas where I worked as a plastic surgery uh, resident yeah. uh, in Scotland and in London and that reinforced my interest in plastic surgery so when I came back to Australia that's, uh, that's what I, uh, I started um, trying to get into training in 
Started my training in plastic surgery back in, 19, in, in 2000. What, um, what university? Where? UWA was where I went, but I, I worked at Royal Perth Hospital uh, as a registrar and resident. And um, after doing a little bit of plastic surgery job as an, as an unaccredited registrar, where you're learning, learning the ropes, as it were, um, uh, I got selected to start training in plastic surgery, which started in 2000. Going from engineering, what, what um, made that transition that you just didn't like? First year of engineering, I don't know how it is now, but back in 1986, which was when I started, um, it was a common first year. So it doesn't matter what so, sort of engineering you did, it was the same first year for everybody. But my goal was to become an electronic engineer. Um, computers were very early days back then. Um, and uh, I thought that it was an exciting time in computers and I wanted to be in computer design and that sort of thing. And then um, actually I, hate, I hated that aspect of engineering. I liked the maths, I liked the physics, but I hated the computer technology part of it. And I uh, figured, well, if I don't like it at university, I'm not likely to like it as a career. And uh, so steered away from that. So you go to London to do you? Uh, London and Scotland was before I started training in plastic surgery. Uh, it was my fourth postgraduate year in uh, 1998 that I was there for the year. Uh, sorry, 97, I was there for the year. Um, and um, so uh, it was just to, uh, to, to get a bit of experience that would help me as a registrar, uh, which is um, the stage before becoming a plastic surgeon, uh, just to help me to get onto the program, because it's a very competitive program to get into in plastic surgery. And back in the late 90s, it was extremely competitive. There's only one training job each year, and usually five or six good candidates for each, each job. And um, so just to give me a bit of an edge, I wanted to make sure that I uh, had more experience than the other people that were going to be applying. So that's why I went to, I thought I'd go to Scotland where you can get a bit more hands-on stuff um, and learn how to operate a little bit more on plastic surgery type patients. And so when I came back, that really helped me to, to really impress, I guess, the guys who were going to be making the decisions that I knew what I was doing and was reasonably good at it. Just in, in terms of um, expectations that you had while studying, what were your expectations as you were coming up through the ranks of this industry, of your industry, um, and really just wanted to know what the what the reality of this industry is for you, because you've been training, how long, a, how long were you studying for in total? Well, about 15 years all up, including medical school and then postgraduate uh, junior doctor work and then advanced training in plastic surgery from the time I finished from the time I started medical school to the time I finished my training was 15 years. In total 15 years, so I'd be interested to know um, Mark, what were your expectations studying? Um, did you have any expectations? Plastic surgery was very different back then. Um, uh, it sounds like a, you know, a, a, an age ago or a generation ago, but really it was only t 20 years ago, I suppose. Um, but in those 20 years, there's been a massive increase in cosmetic surgery. Uh, when I was training in plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery was just something that plastic surgeons did uh, but most of them were plastic surgeons. They did mostly reconstructive stuff, hand trauma, skin cancer, breast reconstruction, craniofacial reconstruction. And so my expectations during my training would be that that would be basically what I did and that cosmetic surgery would be something that I added on to that stuff. Um, I guess over the last 20 years, cosmetic surgery has come into its own as a, as a major part of plastic surgery. And there are certainly a lot more plastic surgeons that just do cosmetic surgery now. I'm still very much a, a general plastic surgery. My expectation was always that I would be a general plastic surgeon. Um, but 
Uh, I guess the, the, the focus and the quantity of cosmetic surgery now is far greater than I had expected it would be when I was doing my training. and probably makes up about 50 to 60% of what I do now. Uh, whereas I guess my expectation during my training was that it would be 10 to 20% of what I would do. The good thing about being a, a consultant plastic surgeon is that you can kind of, to a degree, take or leave the work that you do. Um, in a public hospital situation, it's very different. And um, particularly if you're on call, and I'm still on call for, for hand trauma now in my, in my job, but um, in, a, in, a, in a hospital, public hospital situation, you've got to just work, do whatever there is that comes through the door. But when you're running your own practice, running your own business, you can choose days that you want to work, times that you want to work, weeks that you want to take off. So the hours are very, very arduous when you start out and you're trying to establish a practice and get, get a reputation. There's a, a lot of work. When I first started, I was working in three public hospitals and working probably 60, 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week. Now I'm back to about 50 hours a week and I, I, I don't actually have any public hospital appointments anymore except for Albany, uh, which is a, a regional hospital. Um, I just uh, work mainly in private, so I get to basically control my hours a lot better so I can get time to spend more time with my family and, and take time away and travel and do those sorts of things that I like. Um, my expectations, I guess, when I was training were that I would have a very busy um, career with very long hours and not much time off because that was what plastic surgeons did back then because they're mostly reconstructive and less cosmetic. Um, but um, that's changed. There are a lot more plastic surgeons now as well. When I was um, in my training, there were about 30, 30 plastic surgeons in Western Australia. Uh, now there's about 50, more, more than 50 plastic surgeons in Western Australia. So, and the population hasn't increased by that same proportion. So um, I guess uh, the amount of work that I need to do now is less than I'd anticipated it would be when I was in, in my early years. How long have you been based in Subi? Uh, we started this practice uh, 11 years ago. Um, I've been based in Subiaca since 2005 when I got back from my, I, I was in the UK again for 2004. I spent a year in London working at in, in Chelsea Westminster Hospital and various other hospitals around London um, and uh, returned late 2004 and started up in practice on this street back in 2005. We started the WA Plastic Surgery Centre where there are six of us as a, a, a plastic surgeons here. Each of us has our own practice so even though we come together under the banner of the WA Plastic Surgery Centre we're each individual practitioners that work under that banner and uh, so there's a lot of staff that are shared between the, the plastic surgeons here and they're, they're all fantastic. We're very fortunate to work in an environment where everyone seems to be very happy, everyone gets along. Uh, there's not really any um, major issues that, that inter interfere with each of us doing our, doing our job. And behind me is uh, two very, very good, very nice uh, secretaries, uh, Cherie and Alicia, their names are. My patients all seem to love them and, uh, and I certainly couldn't do what I'd do without their You're support. You've got a strong team there, as well, mm. that helps. What are the, the procedures that you do um, almost like on a daily basis or weekly basis that's common in your practice? and to the ratio of male to female that you deal with? Um... Well, I guess that depends. To answer the first question, yeah. um, as I said, probably about 50 to 60% of my work is now cosmetic. Um, uh, when I started out, it might have been 10 to 15% of my work, if that would have been cosmetic. Um, and in the cosmetic side of things, uh, the vast majority of patients are women. Okay, more than 90% of patients are women. 
Um, in the non-cosmetic side of things, I do a lot of hand trauma. Uh, I do uh, quite a bit of skin cancer surgery. I'm, I've been running, uh, I've been in charge of the WA Melanoma Service, which is a multidisciplinary team that uh, cares for melanoma patients and provides advice to doctors who have melanoma patients. And I've been running that uh, for about 10 years or helping to run that. I've been in charge of it as the director um, for about just over 10 years. Uh, 2000 and actually 2009 January I started doing that job um, and uh, so I see a lot of melanoma patients a lot of skin cancer patients and the mo majority of them are actually men uh, the hand trauma patients the majority are men uh, and so I guess if you put it all together I've got a probably equal numbers of men and women I think social media has certainly changed the view and the perception of cosmetic surgery because as I said when I started out 2005 there was no social media uh, Facebook was in its infancy and it wasn't really used the way it is today. Uh, there was no Instagram, no Snapchat, none of those things. And um, so people, and the Kardashians didn't exist and the whole celebrity culture was in its infancy. So um, uh, before the celebrity culture and the, you know, the, the tagging and the friends and all that sort of thing that you see in social media, uh, you only really saw celebrities on television and in magazines. Now it's very accessible to everyone from school. You know, everyone with a smartphone can see what people are doing and what they're having done. And so cosmetic surgery has become far more normalised because of that culture. Um, early on in the days of cosmetic surgery, it was something that people didn't want others to know that they'd had. And some people still don't for certain types of cosmetic surgery. But a lot of people kind of wear some cosmetic surgery as a badge of honour now. And they, they see it as a social status and achievement. Um, and some people uh, like to know, like others to know that they've had things done. And you only have to look at a lot of the, um, uh, the non-surgical procedures with facial fillers and Botox and those sorts of things. And a lot of people are quite happy for others to know that they've got these things going on. They put it all over their Instagram. I've got some patients who actually um, have uh, videos of themselves getting injected on Instagram, not by me, but by other people. And uh, so that kind of accessibility makes those procedures, surgical and non-surgical procedures, far more uh, normal. And I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I mean, I'll keep my views to myself on that. But um, I do think that it is, uh, it is often considered less significant than it should be. Uh, because certainly some procedures, all procedures have risks and some procedures have more risk than you'd believe from looking at the way it's portrayed in the social media environment. So uh, from that point of view, I think it's harmful. From, uh, from normalising and destigmatizing cosmetic surgery, I think it's great. Uh, because I don't think there's anything wrong with having cosmetic surgery, otherwise I wouldn't be doing it. Um, but I do think that people need to put it in the perspective that it is there for a purpose, and that is to provide to provide more confidence and more um, acceptability, self-acceptance as well as acceptance by others. If there are things that can be improved and there are procedures that can do it, then I, I'm fully supportive of that. Uh, but when it crosses a line to produce things that are not human or not normal, I think that's, that's dangerous. And unfortunately, one of the problems with social media is that sometimes that side of it can be promoted. A big part of my consultations with every single patient, whether it's cosmetic or non-cosmetic, is informing them of what they can expect from the surgery and what the risks are of that surgery. And happily, risks are rare. Risks, risks complications are rare. 
Um, they're inherent to any surgical or non-surgical procedure, but the vast majority, more than 90, 95% of patients, uh, will have any procedure without a significant complication. But you have to warn 100% of those patients that they, that they could get a complication uh, for them to make an informed decision as to whether it's the right thing for them or not. So, uh, yeah, absolutely, you have to tell all the patients about the potential risks. If I have a patient where I believe the risks of the surgery outweigh the benefit to them, then I'll tell them that as well. And I don't, I don't personally perform procedures in patients where I don't believe that procedure is indicated or justified. And so if I think they have unrealistic expectations or expectations that I don't believe I can fulfill or don't want to fulfill because I think it's not in the patient's interest, then I'll let them know that. You mentioned traveling, that you love traveling. What countries, what countries that you like to travel to or which countries have you been to? I've been very fortunate because, um, I mean, I, I, never, I never went overseas other than uh, from India, coming from India and then returning to India with my family. Uh, so I, other than that, I never went overseas until I was in my early 20s. Um, and uh, since then, I've been very fortunate to travel a lot. And um, so I've spent time in the UK, as you know, and in, Sc in Scotland and in England. I've spent time in Canada, uh, in the States. I've traveled to um, around, all around Europe. Uh, I've been to Africa, um, to the Philippines. I I've been involved in, uh, with charities for the last, um, oh, the last, since 2005. In fact, I went, my first charity trip was as a registrar in 2001. In fact, I was, I was in the Philippines when the planes hit the two towers in 9-11. Um, in I've been involved with charities since 2005, uh, and through that I've been to Africa and the Philippines quite a bit, um, and uh, um, also been to holidays in Africa, and I'm about to go to China with my family later this year, uh, and to Italy later this year. So uh, I've done done quite a bit of travelling. New Zealand? I'm very fortunate. Not yet. Not yet. Uh, okay. My secretary keeps telling she's a, she's a Kiwi. Cherie, and uh, she's trying to convince me to go to New Zealand, and uh, I'd love to go. It sounds like a fantastic place. Um, it's just trying to find the right time. Uh, but I've heard that there's some great cycling tours of New Zealand, and um, my, my family's into fitness, um, and uh, I think that's something that really interests us. My kids are at the age where it's a bit hard to, to take them out to do that sort of thing right now, but uh, at, at some point we'll do that. We'll get into these questions, Mark, if you don't mind. No. Go for it. So the first question we have is, Liposuction, is that an effective way to lose weight? Not at all, absolutely not. Okay, liposuction, if someone needs to lose weight, um, then they need to diet and exercise and, uh, and do it in a way that is sustainable. Um, fat cells are tricky little suckers. They, um, they can go up in volume by 1,000%, okay? So they can increase their volume 10 times. And so if you remove half of the fat in somebody, in a particular area, it only has to double to get back to where they've started. And so uh, liposuction is, is very poor treatment for, for weight loss. A lot of non-surgeons actually promote it for that purpose. And so the, most of liposuction is actually not done by surgeons. It's mostly done by cosmetic physicians. Um, and in the States, most of it's done by dermatologists. In Australia, most of it's done by cosmetic physicians out in there in their clinics rather than in hospitals uh, with patients who are awake um, under a local anaesthetic. And um, in some of those patients, they, you know, they do expect that it will help them to lose weight. The purpose of liposuction is to bring areas that are out of, out of proportion with other areas around them 
back into line. So ideally liposuction is used when people are generally of a pretty good weight. Um, so I don't know if you know what BMI is, but yep. a, a body mass index, you know, 27, 28 at most. Um, so maybe a little bit overweight, but not too much. Um, and in the patients who are a healthy weight, if there's a particular area like the, the tummy or the thighs or the chest or the arms or the bottom uh, that sticks out more than the areas around them, then liposuction is perfect to bring those back into line with the others. Gotcha. Okay, question number two. Plastic surgery and cosmetic surgery, are they the same? Not at all. Um, again, it's a misconception that's widely held. In fact, my own wife didn't know the difference for a long time. Um, and people in the community use the terms interchangeably. Um, and that's, a, that's, that's because cosmetic surgery originally was described and the techniques of cosmetic surgery were described by plastic surgeons. And plastic surgeons in the 70s were those who did all the cosmetic surgery. Um, there is no regulation of cosmetic surgery in any country in the world. So anyone with a medical degree, uh, if the patient allows them to do a surgical procedure on them, then there's nothing to stop them from doing that. Uh, when, we f when we graduate from a medical school in Australia, it's changed now, but when I finished, you got a Bachelor of Medicine and a Bachelor of Surgery. And that allowed you to then say, well, I'm qualified to do surgery. So many patients who, many people who operate on patients, uh, whether it's to do skin lesions or whatever they want, or cosmetic procedures, uh, can do it without any training in surgery whatsoever. Um, you know, you can, um, many of the cosmetic physicians, they do get training, usually by other cosmetic physicians, um, and that might be in a situation where they're operating in a hospital or they're operating on on patients who are getting done under an anaesthetic um, and they're trained by other cosmetic physicians and watch and help and then do those procedures under their supervision but they've never actually received any formal surgical training in a surgical training program and in some states they're allowed to call themselves surgeons in other states they're not in Western Australia they're supposed to call themselves cosmetic physicians okay. um, um, but cosmetic surgery is, is a technique that is practiced by doctors, some of them surgeons, some of them non-surgeons, uh, which involve improving the appearance of a patient. Um, and uh, plastic surgery, on the, on the other hand, um, is, a, is a specialty uh, which concentrates on the restoration of function and form. That, that's one of the things that we sort of learn when we're training is that plastic surgery is focused on the restoration of function and form. So if you look at the form side of things, how things look, as we get older, we don't look as good as when we were younger. And so the techniques to restore form, which reconstructive techniques might be to fill a hole that's been taken away with cancer or um, trauma, something's been destroyed and it needs to be put back together using techniques that um, bring tissue in from somewhere else or put things back together as nicely as possible. Um, those techniques are the same techniques that are then applied to cosmetic surgery procedures which have then branched out and, and expanded on their own and, and formed new procedures but they all arose from the techniques that were used in plastic surgery. And so in the early days 
plastic surgeons, cosmetic surgeons were basically used interchangeably. Nowadays they can't be because many people who are cosmetic physicians or in some states call themselves cosmetic surgeons are not surgeons and are not plastic surgeons. Three, breast augmentation is a one-time procedure. No, that's not true either. In the majority of cases it is. Um, and the vast majority of women who have breast augmentation um, will be fine for any length of time up to you know 20 years. But everyone who has breast implants put in, if they live long enough and those implants are in for long enough, will need some form of secondary surgery. Okay, the implants don't last forever. Nothing man-made lasts forever. Certainly no medical devices last forever. And breast implants have a finite lifespan, and no one actually knows what that is. Um, but I've taken out implants that have been in for 25 years and are still intact. And I've also taken out implants that have been in for three years and are completely disintegrated. So there are various different factors that might contribute to how long they last, but they don't last forever. As well as that patient's age, their tissues change, they sag, they, they get pregnant, they, the breasts go up and down, they gain weight, they lose weight. Um, and as they age and they go through different changes in their lives, their breasts will change and the implant's relationship with their breasts will change. They can get scar tissue around the implants, that's called a capsule, that can change and contract over time and can cause a, a change in the shape of the breasts and the hardness of the breasts and in some cases can be quite painful. Uh, and so there's lots of, lots of different reasons why patients with implants might need revision surgery, but no one who ever puts implants in should consider that that's the end of it. Just the uh, last question here, Mark. Uh, all plastic surgeons are filthy rich. Well, filthy rich? I don't think so. Uh, look, it, it's, a, it's certainly a conception, and I don't think there are any struggling plastic surgeons out there, put it that way. You know, if you think about it, there's about 50 plastic surgeons servicing two and a half million people in Western Australia. There's plenty of work for us. Um, there is a lot of work that other surgeons do as well and other doctors do as well, as I said. Um, and so the, the amount of work per surgeon is certainly shrinking, but there aren't any quiet plastic surgeons out there. And you look at any doctor or any, any profession that's busy, if they're good at what they do, they're gonna, they're gonna get work from it and that work will then generate an income. Um, so doctors in general are, are, not, are not struggling. Most doctors are reasonably well off. Uh, most surgeons are well off. In fact, I, I read a, 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 um, uh, an ATO release about a month ago uh, that said that the, the highest paid professions in Western Australia, those that lived in the, the, the suburbs with the, the, the highest um, uh, house price, were surgeons. And, uh, and so surgeons in general, I think, do reasonably well. They all work very hard. And uh, if it takes 15 years to, to get to a stage where you can actually start billing a patient for your services and for the first 15 years you're paid a salary which is sometimes not commensurate with the amount of training and hours that you're doing, you're going to charge for that, charge for that degree of skill and, tra and training and, um, and that's what surgeons do. So filthy rich I think is a little bit charged and a little bit emotive. Um, I think most plastic surgeons and most surgeons, most doctors in general are well off um, but they've, they've, they've gotten to that stage where they have the right to do that. Compare that, and I don't mean to get sort of too, too um, you know, uh, argumentative about it, but you know, there are people who are filthy, filthy rich, who do nothing more than have you know, uh, an Instagram page that happens to get you know, 20,000 followers, 
and they're paid millions of dollars to sit at home preening themselves in front of a camera and um, and they you could argue that they that they don't have the right to earn that sort of money or uh, you know the, the, the celebrity culture really promotes promotes that kind of um, uh, uh, money um, and sports is another one you know you look at people who are 21 22 and they're very successful in their sporting field and and they make 10 times what any plastic surgeon would make. Um, so Filthy Rich is a very emotive um, and uh, I guess um, biased way of putting it, but I think most surgeons and most plastic surgeons, I guess, have earned the right to have a decent income with the amount of work and training that they've done to get there. Awesome. It's probably just one question from me, Mark. Where, where do you see yourself in the next five years? Or? Uh, look, it's really hard to, to know. I, I guess it's very, it, it's like changing careers or changing pathways as a surgeon is like shifting the Titanic. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to do because of the amount of time and effort you've put into getting to point A. I see myself being still here. I still, you know, I still, uh, I love what I do. I'm very privileged to be able to do it. I, I get a real kick out of helping people and I do, I think, help people. Um, and uh, so I still see myself as being a plastic surgeon and, and doing what I do. Uh, my children will all be out of school in five years' time and, uh, and I guess a, a bigger part of my life will be spending uh, time travelling with my wife and maybe with my kids um, and, uh, and hopefully um, making a mark on the world so that, God forbid, I, I'm taken out of it, um, uh, there'll be some evidence that I was here. Just a parting, uh, just some advice for anyone that's studying to become uh, a doctor in your profession or is coming up through uh, school. Is there any advice you can give to them out there and our audience who may be in that field? Uh, yeah, look, I guess like any field, like any, anything you aspire to be successful in, it takes hard work and determination. Right? Nothing is ever handed to anyone on a platter except if you're an Instagram you know, millionaire. Uh, and even they obviously have to work hard. It's, you know, there are millions of people who are trying to be successful on Instagram for every one who is successful. And so I guess um, it, it, takes, it takes hard work and determination and don't lose focus of the goal. And uh, there will always be obstructions and, and hurdles to get over. Uh, and you just got to take them in your stride rather than see that as a reason to not keep going. So anything worth achieving is worth working hard for and my advice would be to work hard and stay focused and keep the, the end goal in sight. Mark, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Really nice to meet you. Thank you.